because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. On this week's episode, I am interviewing the author of this book, False Alarm. Let me make sure I get the subtitle correct. How Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor, and Fails to Fix the Planet. The author is Bjorn Lomborg, really smart guy, uh, known for a long time as the skeptical environmentalist. He is very interested in energy and environmental issues, but also broader issues of what I would call human flourishing. He and I have uh, different ways of coming at them. I would characterize his views as more collectivist uh, than mine, which are very individualist. But I think he is very good at trying to look at the full context of issues. So in the realm of energy and environment, when he's looking at something like rising CO2 levels and any negative impacts they have, he also looks at positive impacts and most importantly, looks at the positive impacts of the energy that comes along with them. And when he does that, and when he tries to look at them objectively, he comes up with a very, very different conclusion than what you tend to hear, which is that rising CO2 levels are an existential crisis or catastrophe that requires rapidly eliminating fossil fuel use. So I think it's a really valuable book. I was eager to have him on the show. I've actually never had him on the show, so and we had actually never met besides email, so it was cool to meet him. I just finished the interview, so I can tell you, definitely worth listening to, and I hope you enjoy it. So without further ado, I will bring on Dr. Bjorn Lomborg, president of the Copenhagen Consensus Center and author of this book, False Alarm. I am joined now by Dr. Bjorn Lomborg, author of False Alarm. Bjorn, welcome to Power Hour. It's great to be here, Alex. Okay, I got tons of stuff to ask, so I'm going to jump right in. Uh, this is obviously, I mean, this is a show about energy and environment, so it's always timely to have you on, but it's particularly timely right now because one of the big narratives of the 2020 election is that we are in the middle of a climate crisis. And that is the single thing we should be focused on. And this crisis requires rapidly eliminating fossil fuel use in America and around the world. And so that's part of the narrative that it's a climate crisis that requires eliminating fossil fuels. The other part of the narrative is this won't be a problem at all because renewables, specifically solar and wind, are more than ready to replace fossil fuels. And you can see with the plan Joe Biden just announced, it's got both of these characteristics. It's a crisis, this should be our whole focus, we need to get rid of fossil fuels, but I have a renewable plan that'll solve everything. So what I wanna do first is to jump into the climate crisis aspect, and then we can talk about the issue uh, of alternatives. And I thought I'd start out with the climate crisis aspect with What's the current state of public opinion around the world about the level of problem that rising CO2 levels and associated climate change pose? Well, so, I mean, if you look at what people actually answer when you ask them on polls, they're scared and they think this is a really terrible thing and we need to do something about it. Uh, you know, if we think just a couple of months back when uh, before Corona, uh, you know, students around the world were striking uh, to do something about climate change. Uh, Washington Post uh, surveyed all young uh, students in, in the U.S. that found that 57 percent of them are worried about climate change. They're afraid of climate change. Uh, and, and this, of course, why students were saying, why should I study for a future I won't have? They literally believe, you know, 10, 20 years down the line, there's not going to be a planet anymore. There's no reason for them to really go into the studies. They should just worry about the here and now. If you ask adults around the world, uh, so YouGov did that across uh, 28 nations, they found that almost half the world's population now believe that because global warming is so terrible, it is likely it will lead to the extinction of the human race. Look, this is just way outside what the UN climate panel tells us. This is way outside what the science is actually telling us. It is saying global warming is real. It's man-made. It is a problem, but it's not anywhere close to this level of scare that we're now being presented with. To give you a sense of proportion, the UN climate panel estimate that by the 2070s, so about half a century from now, the impact of climate change will be equivalent to each one of us losing somewhere between 0.2 and 2% of our income. 
Uh, just to give you a sense of proportion, we also ex expect, or the UN expect us to be at least uh, almost three times as rich as what we are today. And I need to put in more digits because otherwise it won't make sense. We'll be 2.63 times as rich as we are today in the 2070s. So what they're basically telling us is because of global warming, we won't be 2.63 times as rich. We'll only be 2.56 times as rich. Now, that's a problem, but it's not the end of the world. It's not the reason why you shouldn't study. And it's certainly not the reason why you should think mankind is going to expire. This is a problem that's been ballooned into the existential crisis that it's just simply not. So you mentioned that you that a lot of this is based on the UN climate panel. Talk a little bit about how you arrived at your views, including how studying different kinds of scientific research has informed your views. So, I mean, look, I'm, I'm a political scientist who works with a lot of economists. So I'm definitely a social scientist. I am not a natural scientist. I have not done climate research. I've done climate economic research, and I've done quite a bit of that. But what I basically say is, look, we have the UN climate panel. It's by no means uh, perfect. No organization is. And there's certainly some things that you could be concerned about. But it is also, in many ways, the gold standard of what we know about global warming. So I simply take my starting point at the UN climate panel. Uh, they tell us global warming is a problem. They tell us it's real, it's man-made, but they also give us a sense of size of the problem. And I think that's the main component that's missing in our current conversation. And that's the one that I try to bring in. That's the one that climate economists bring to the table that tried to talk about, you know, as I mentioned just before, how is it possible that we hear this end of the world happening when climate economists are telling us by, you know, 2070s, it's going to be somewhere between 0.2 and 2% negative impact per year. How's, how's that possible? Well, it's because most of the stories that we hear, we only hear incompletely and very often very exaggerated. So if, if I can just give you one example. Yeah, you uh, actually, until year, I was about to ask this uh, next. Okay. And this actually, I, I just want to interject one thing that, you know, one thing that came up yesterday on your Twitter feed is the uh, probably my one of my least favorite Nobel laureates, which is saying something, Joseph Stieglitz, even before this, uh, he wrote, I think it just uh, well, I think a, a terrible review. I, I read it before reading what you wrote uh, because I was curious what I would find. And I just thought it was nuts. But one thing that was that he mentioned and didn't address at all, which I think is one of the most powerful parts of your book, is he said you talk about the media distorting these issues. And I think that's one of the chief values of the book is that you give a lot of examples of how if you look at the actual research it says one thing, and then the media portrayal leads you to a conclusion that has complete that is in substance completely uh, different. So I'd love for you to talk about any number of those examples. Yes, and, and I think they all share the same component. It's not that they are false or outright false; it's that they leave out incredibly important information. So, for instance, last year, uh, a, a big headline in Washington Post and many other countries, uh, many other papers across the country and across the world, really, told us that because of global warming, it would lead to sea level rise that would need 187 million people would have to relocate. And not surprisingly, in many of these papers, then it became they'll all drown, which, of course, they won't because we have 80 years to move. Uh, but what they basically said was sea levels will rise, which is absolutely true. And then if you assume nobody does anything for the next 80 years, so you sit around, waves start lap up over your knees and then eventually your hips or and then eventually you either drown or you have to move. What they're saying is then it's 187 million people. But that very research that did this also said this is entirely implausible. We're just doing this as a uh, as a, a sort of minimum estimate for this. Plausibly, people will obviously adapt. If they adapt by building better sea defenses, you know, dikes, all kinds of other ways, instead of 187 million people being flooded, you will see 305,000 people being flooded. So 600 times less. Just to give you a sense of proportion, uh, each year, twice that number of people move out of California alone. So yes, we could probably handle half the number of people that move out of California over 80 years for the entire world. It tells you a very different story that 187 million people are gonna either be relocated or even drown, and we'll need to see 305,000 people relocate over the next 80 years. And I think that's the fundamental problem with much of the conversation on climate change. 
which of these two stories is better if you are a media that survives on clicks and views? Of course you're going to go with 187. It's just much more fun and much more interesting than the 305,000. But it's a very bad way to inform the world. And of, unfortunately, you just mentioned Joe Stiglitz. And, and I think many people like him who are you know, generally smart people but rely a lot on media, they have that experience that, oh my God, I just read that story about the 187 million people who are going to get flooded. I just read about all the people who are going to starve. I just read about, you hear all these stories and eventually it becomes this background noise of this is the end of the world. It is not. The 305,000 people, and that's probably even too exaggerated, is the right number. And of course, that is a tiny, tiny cost of climate change. It's not zero, but it's not the end of the world. It's a tiny cost. And that's why these costs add up to two or three percent of GDP. So I definitely see there's this motivation in the U.S. Sometimes it's called if it bleeds, it leads. You know, the idea that negative news gets attention. But, uh, you know, my view and I, I come from philosophy, so I tend to look at things through that lens. I think we have a basic philosophy of the planet that really idealizes the unimpacted planet and basically treats it as, oh, if we don't do anything, it's going to be stable. It's going to be safe. It's going to be sufficient. And then if we have any kind of impact, the whole system is just going to um, collapse. And I think you see this with Stiglitz's reference because he just says something like, that, you know, everything we find new about climate change is bad. And you just think, like, how could that possibly be the case that everything is bad? And I think one, one remarkable thing your book does that's very unusual is you mention even benefits of CO2, benefits of warming. And you, you know, your conclusion is that there, it's, it's not a net benefit. And that would be an interesting discussion to have, but it's... Like you're actually acknowledging that, and yet most people, it's not even a possibility that could there could be a net benefit. What do no. you think about this philosophical issue and how it informs things? Well, I, th I think you're right on two levels. First of all, the fact that you don't recognize everything has both negative and positive impacts is just ridiculous. That's sort of a Disney world if you believe that all you know global warming is bad for all good things and good for all bad things. That's that's a fantasy world. Of course, it'll have positive and negative impacts. Uh, one of the reasons why it has more negative than positive impacts is simply because we are adapted to the current place that we have on temperature scales. So if you look at Helsinki, which is pretty far north, and if you look at Athens, which is pretty far south, they both live pretty well at their current temperatures because Helsinki has lots of insulated houses and Athens has lots of open sort of houses that can uh, get rid of a lot of the heat. If you increase the heat or if you decrease it, if you go cold, both of these will eventually have more costs than benefits. That's why a lot of the cost come into climate change simply because we have a legacy investment of a lot of technologies that would be negatively impacted because we move away from the previous, if you will, uh, place where we used to be. But the reality is we can adapt fairly costlessly. And that goes to your second point of this, this idea. Not only are we being told that this is the end of the world, but we're also because we're constantly being bombarded with these stories. They're all bad because those are the ones that lead. You think everything is just getting worse and you end up with the conclusion that Sticklitz does. And, and there's a fairly simple way to see if that's true. Because we know that the social cost of carbon, which is essentially economist way of trying to look at what are all the negative impacts and positive impacts. So the net cost of emitting one extra ton of CO2 what is that going to be? That's basically trying to estimate all the bad stuff and the good stuff and add all of it up into one number. If Stiglitz was right that we keep discovering more and more bad things, that number would keep increasing. So back in the 19s, uh, uh, 1990s, it might be you know $10 per ton, then it would become 20 and then it would become 40. And now we'd be saying it's $100 or something like that. That's not what's happened. Actually, it's gone the opposite way. It is such that back in the 19s, we thought global warming was a bigger problem, and it's now stabilized at a much lower level. So Stickler is just simply plainly and falsely ill-informed. Sorry, he's, he's not falsely ill-informed. He's plainly wrong, and he's ill-informed. Fundamentally, we have seen the level of co the cost of carbon 
go down, we have not been surprised that things are getting worse. We're actually been, if anything, surprised that things are a little better because we have started having these models where we also look at what are some of the benefits. Uh, another benefit that's obvious is as temperatures rise, you're going to see more heat waves. You constantly hear about more heat waves, and that's a real problem. But as temperatures rise, you're also going to see fewer cold deaths, and that's obviously a plus for the people who won't now die from cold deaths. And incidentally, many, many more people die from cold deaths and heat deaths. In the U.S., it's about 10,000 people die from heat, about 170,000 that die from cold. I mean, that's that's just a striking example of something that is never discussed. You have some really good yep. information about that in the book, but it's it, it goes to this idea, uh, you know, my focus is just human impact is viewed as all bad and the starting planet is viewed as perfect. So people think, oh, well, of course, if it's getting warmer, that can only be bad. And they don't even have the common sense to think, oh, well, particularly in colder regions where warming is supposed to occur more, some people want it uh, warmer and, and people are dying of cold in any case. I want to read one of my... There, oh, can, go ahead. Can, sorry, can I just... Uh, there, there's a wonderful study uh, some years back that looked at, you know, as temperatures rise in the U.S., that's typically thought of as bad. But then the researchers said, well, what's the average temperature for Americans? So they were basically taking the average temperature for each place where people live. And as you know, people don't generally move to Wisconsin. They move to Florida or New, New, New Mexico or places uh -huh. like that. Turns out that the average temperature for Americans has increased much faster than the temperature of the US, the geographical temperature, what that tells you is that most people seem to say, I'd actually like it a little warmer. Oh, that's warmer. an amazing of there all study. Kinds of, uh, there, there's a, all kinds of other things because it's also where is your jobs and all that stuff. But fundamentally, most people, when they retire, go to warmer places. Now, if you live in a really warm place, maybe you actually want to go higher north. But it's important to say, at least for the US and many other uh, temperate uh, places, more warmth is typically seen as a good thing, not a bad thing. Yeah, I would love to. I'll email you about that study. I want to. I want to yeah, find that. That's a, that. that's a great uh, e example. So I want to read. This is not going to be news to you because it's from the book. But I want to read one of my favorite quotes from the book, which I think encapsulates a lot of this. You say, when confronted with this economic consensus on the costs of climate change, so this is what you referred to earlier in terms of life is going to get better and the idea is it's going to get a little not better than it would have otherwise been. And you say, many climate campaigners often indignantly claim that the real costs mu must be much higher. Yet when you examine the arguments they use to make this case, and this is the part I really like, they are almost always based on studies or models that leave out adaptation, carbon dioxide fertilization, the expanding bullseye effect, and the many other factors we have looked at in this and preceding chapters. So I want to talk a little bit about adaptation and then the bullseye effect. And one of the studies, again, I love the fact that you, you take the studies that are reported by the media and then tell the truth about them. There's one that led to the headline, meeting Paris climate goals would save thousands of American lives during heat waves. Could you talk about this and then the actual research? Yes. So this study did, uh, and, and it's really just, you know, it's an obvious thing. You know what you're going to come out with uh, at the outset. They basically said as, as temperatures rise, more people are going to have heat deaths uh, because obviously more, more, more high temperatures are going to be worse. And that's true if you just calibrate the model that way. But what they didn't do was they didn't ex expect or assume any adaptation. So for instance, in Seattle, 38% uh, of all Seattleites is that what they're called? People who live in I, Seattle? I don't know. I'm not. Don't, yeah. Uh, have, have air conditioning. And so they're expecting it's going to get a lot warmer. And nobody will ever think in the next 80 years to say, I want to buy an air conditioner. They're just going to continue not having an air conditioner. And of course, as people will die from, uh, from, from heat waves. That's true. But it's also phenomenally misleading. And what they then said was, but if we do the climate accord, we will actually avoid much of this. But again, they didn't look at what the actual Paris climate accord would give them. They were saying, if people actually do what they claim in the treaty, they will do, it'll really help. But of course, we're nowhere near doing that. The Paris agreement will deliver about 1% of what politicians promise. Again, this is not my number. This is the UN's own estimate of their uh, of the impact of the of the treaty. So basically, we have a study that assumes nobody will do anything, and then say, "See, 
big problem. And then they say everybody will do more than much, much more than what we're actually promising to do with the climate policy. See, we've solved the problem. The reality, of course, is if you want to help people in Seattle not getting uh, uh, more heat deaths, you should make sure that they buy more air conditioners. It's really not very complicated. And this, of course, happens if they're rich enough. This happens if you allow air conditioners and if you allow cheap uh, electricity. And it doesn't happen if you allow people to become poor because then they can't afford it. Or if you make electricity incredibly expensive, especially the poor won't be able to do this. So this has very, very little or almost nothing to do with Paris. It has everything to do with prosperity. Got it. Let's talk quickly about the bullseye effect. And this is something that comes up. You'll hear these very exorbitant claims of climate-related damage. And I thought one of the giveaways of the Stiglitz review is he just randomly selected 2017. And he said, oh, there's a lot of climate damage in 2017. Even if I hadn't known the data, I would have thought, why did he pick one year to be? So yeah, and not, <laughs> and not 2019, right? Right, right. Yeah. Exactly. But, but I think yeah. the broader point here is this bullseye effect, which I hadn't heard that term before, but I think you give a good explanation of it. And I think it, it sheds a lot of light. So maybe talk about the example of Miami or some of the other examples you give. Yes. So a lot of the research that is out there looks at what will be the impact if a hurricane hits. But what we forget to remember is human societies also change. So, you know, take, for instance, Florida. Uh, in 1900, almost nobody uh, lived in the coastal uh, communities in Florida. Since then, everybody has gone down. No, that, no, that's not true. But a lot of people have gone down to Florida. So much so that the coastal counties of Florida has increased their population number 67-fold over the last 120 years. At the same time, the U.S. has just quadrupled its numbers. So what you basically have is many, many more people at the very place where hurricanes hit. So not surprisingly, when hurricanes hit, many more people will be impacted. At the same time, they also have much more expensive houses. So when you look at what is the damage cost of a hurricane hitting uh, you know, Miami, for instance, today versus Miami back in 1926 when a really big uh, hurricane hit, back then there was virtually nothing to hit. So not much damage there. But if it were to hit today, that same hurricane would be twice as expensive as the most costly hurricane in U.S. history. What that shows is we're basically having, and that's how this uh, the expanding bullseye comes out. They, they, you imagine that somebody's shooting arrows at, at random. Uh, if you just have a tiny, tiny bullseye somewhere, you know, the chance that you're going to hit that bullseye is very, very low. But if the bullseye keep expanding. So, you know, the cities keep big, becoming bigger. People live everywhere. They have very, very expensive stuff. Eventually, when you shoot these arrows, everything will hit the bullseye because the bullseye is so big. We have basically made our societies such big bullseyes that it's not surprising that you have higher and higher damage. But what people say is, see, this was the most costly hurricane ever. That's because of global warming. No, that's because we have more people with more stuff close to harm's way. And of course, the research that actually tries to look at that, they try to remove that signal by simply saying, what would have happened if all hurricanes had hit the U.S. as it looks today? So the 1926 hurricane I told you about in Miami would have hit the U.S. today. What if the uh, Hurricane Andrew in 1992 would have hit the U.S. as it looks today? If you look at all of those hurricanes, turns out you don't see an increasing level of hurricane damage. You see a slightly decreasing hurricanes. It's not significant, but it's not increasing. And what that tells you is we really have a very different impact when you take into account the uh, expanding bullseye. So I want to raise one issue that integrates a lot of this stuff, because we've talked about how adapt there's a tendency to ignore adaptation. There's a tendency to discount any kind of positive impacts. There's a, there's a systematic tendency by the media to make things um, negative. Politicians certainly do this. Does this make you worry at all? I mean, because it, it definitely makes me worry about something like the IPCC, where many of these political and cultural factors are influencing it. And even, I mean, it's... I don't think it's right to say that, oh, all the scientists are wrong or anything like that, but we do see that science gets distorted by the system. We see it gets manipulated for political purposes. And so it stands to reason that those same political purposes would somewhat manipulate what research gets done and who gets elevated in the system. What do you think of that? 
I think that's probably true. Again, I haven't done a, a thorough study on it, so it's more my, my, my sense of this. If you look at, for instance, what Richard Tull, who is one of the lead authors of the IPC report, the last IPC report number five, uh, he said that they went into uh, doing the, uh, uh, the, the census, sorry, the uh, uh, summary report, which is what most policymakers read and say, this is a problem, but a manageable one. And that was what got changed into this is a really, really big problem. And, and you know, they're, they're the same kind of words, but clearly there's a different emphasis. He actually ended up quipping over this because he just said, we're, we're going way beyond what the science is telling us. And I think, that, you know, there's been a number of these things. And, and again, I think this is true in pretty much every sim single thing you see. So, you know, if you talk to teachers unions, they'll tell you, well, if we don't spend enough money on our kids, we'll, we'll have a terrible education system. And, and doctors will tell you, if you don't spend money on healthcare systems, we're all going to die kind of thing. There's, there's always this sort of exaggeration. And, and I think everybody discounts that a little bit. I think the IPC has been reasonably good at avoiding that, especially if you read the real reports and not the summary, which are typically written by politicians, but, and certainly for politicians, but also very much by the bureaucrats who are working underneath the, the politicians. But I think it's, in, it's inevitable that you get some of that, but I think we have to also say IPC is still much, much better than pretty much anything else you see, and certainly much better than most of the reporting that you see in uh, in the newspapers. And, and again, I think it's much, much better conversation simply to say, I, I don't want to get stuck down and saying, should the IPC have changed their you know attitudes a little bit here? It's much more a clear-cut case of saying, how much is the cost of our climate policies and how much benefit do we derive from them in, in terms of reduced damages? And those are some things that we can almost deal with without having that nitty-gritty nitty conversation about what exactly does IPC do right or wrong. Let's then talk about the costs of climate policy. And, you know, the dominant narrative right now is that there is no cost to any kind of climate policy in terms of rapidly eliminating fossil fuel use. You know, Biden says it's going to be a benefit. And part of this is that there's a narrative in what I would call the empowered world. So those of us who already have reliable uh, energy and machine power, there's this narrative that, well, solar and wind are rapidly overtaking fossil fuels. What do you think the data say about this issue? So first of all, Solar and wind is certainly not overtaking our world. Uh, the International Energy Agency estimate we get a little more than 1% of our energy from solar and wind. Uh, if you look at the total amount of renewable energy that we, we get from the world, uh, I have this wonderful graph, at least I think it's wonderful, in, in my book that starts from 1800. Uh, the whole world was powered by renewable energy in 1800. We got 95, sorry, 94% of our energy from renewables. Since then, it's declined dramatically as we got rid of renewable energy because it's incredibly unreliable. And for the last 50 years, we've been at 13 to 14%. It's been stable for the last 50 years. What we're now trying with our climate policies is push this up. And what the International Energy Agency estimate is that by 2040, if we really push this through, we can get up from about 14% all the way up to 20%. Renewables are simply not anywhere close to taking over the world. And for the simple reason that they're not cost effective. Remember, when you when people tell you this is cost uh, this is cost effective, you got to ask. Oh, all right, great. Can I have my renewable subsidies back? Can we just stop you know subsidizing in any kind of way? And of course we can. Most of these still require so solar and wind requires this year, according to the International Energy Agency, 141 billion dollars in direct subsidies. That does not mean that it's not. Uh, competitive some places they are you know solar and wind very clearly uh, for instance for for uh, uh, for uh, uh, cell phone towers out in the middle of Africa it's much much better to just put up solar panels and batteries than actually have someone drive out there every se second week uh, with a uh, with a can of gasoline or diesel and fill it up and have a generator and all that stuff so there's some places definitely a good idea there are also other places in rich world countries where it's a good idea. We're already doing that. It's not rocket science that we do stuff that makes sense. But the vast majority is not sustainable without regulations and rules and subsidies. And that's, of course, why we're never going to get very far with the current approach, which is simply to say, let's promise more and more. As long as it's expensive, you can only get people to do a little bit. 
if we could innovate the price of green energy, and that could be a lot of different kinds of green energy, that could be solar and wind with batteries, but it could also be uh, fourth generation nuclear, or it could be a lot of other ideas out there. If we could innovate the price of green energy down below fossil fuels, everyone would switch, not just rich, well-meaning Americans, but the Chinese, the Indians, the Africans, everybody else, because we would have made it cheaper. So the whole point here is to recognize the current approach that's saying, let's do something that's really hard and really expensive. Although they will tell you, as you just said, that this is free or it'll even make us richer. Why is it then that it's so hard to do? So if we try and go further down that route, we're going to do the same thing as we've done for the last 30 years, which is basically achieve nothing. If we try to change tack, and that requires us to get to terms with some of these un inconvenient facts about climate change, then we're much more likely to actually do it both cheaper and more effectively and actually start fixing climate change. I mean, one of the chronic issues that the favored renewables, solar and wind face, is the problem of intermittency or unreliability. And, you know, the the standard response to that is, oh, well, we'll just use batteries uh, to store it all. So just store, you know, a day or a week uh, of energy and we'll just be totally fine. What's your reading on the data about how easy energy storage is and how cost effective it is for that kind well, of use? I think most people have no sense of this. You know, so fundamentally, the U.S. right now have non-hydro storage worth 17 seconds of U.S. electricity use, of average U.S. electricity use. So no, we can't store energy even for a night and certainly not for a couple of weeks without wind and certainly not as we need to over seasons. This is going to require a fundamental recast of how the U.S. and global electricity systems work. What we've done right now is simply say we put in all the solar and wind, which typically or at least starts off being uh, subsidized, and then we let the gas and coal fire and nuclear pay for it in the sense that they suddenly can only work sometimes. Uh, that is, they can't provide baseload power all the time, but they can only provide it when the wind is not blowing or the sun is not shining. Now, that works in rich countries because people have already put up these, all these expensive uh, 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 you know, power plants, expecting that they could run them, say, 80 percent of the time. Now, unfortunately, they can only run them 30 or 40 percent of the time. And so many of them are starting to say, eh, maybe we're just going to mothball them. And then you'll have the big problems for the energy sector. Uh, we're seeing that in many places in Europe, uh, where, for instance, Britain now have to pay more than a billion pounds a year in order to have capacity. So basically paying uh, typically uh, 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 diesel generators to provide backup power for when the wind and the sun is not there. Clearly, that's not cost effective. That's simply you know, manipulating the story to make you feel like we're doing something good, but actually we have to put in all this fossil fuel backup because otherwise it's not going to work. Uh, one area you stress that I think is really important and understressed is just that, you know, the number of people in the world who have very little energy and then what kind of solution or non-solution these solar and wind projects are for them. And one of the stories, let me look it up. You had this story of, I believe it's called Darnai and their uh, experiment or adventure with solar. Could you talk about that example? Because I think it's really revealing. Well, so Dainai is just one example of, uh, you know, Greenpeace went in in India in this uh, uh, little village up in northeast of India and said, we're going to give you solar power. They they had a long time ago, and I think it's because uh, of, of some semi-civil war uh, 30 years ago, lost uh, grid uh, connection. And so they, they were a very poor place. And basically Greenpeace came and said, we'll give you some solar power. They put up lots of uh, batteries uh, so you could make it through the night. Uh, and obviously the city thought, hey, that's pretty cool. Uh, somebody will actually give us electricity. That's better than not having electricity. Uh, what happened then when they actually started this was they realized, oh, wait, we can't actually use any of the stuff we'd like to use. You can't use irons. You can't use uh, 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 cookers. You can't use refrigerators. You can basically just use you know, uh, an electric light or charge your cell phone and very, very little other things. And what they also found was that most people would just run it out so you wouldn't have any electricity uh, towards the end of the evening and certainly nothing for the morning. Uh, so not a very convenient thing. They, uh, Greenpeace invited the, the uh, energy minister of the state in, and you know, they, everybody thought they were just gonna be you know, clapping and applauding and thank you very much. But what they actually said was they, uh, he was met with demonstrations saying, we don't want fake electricity, we want real electricity. 
city. And if you think about it, if you were in that city, of course you would want grid power. You'd want to have power that was both much cheaper and that was there 24 seven. Not surprisingly, after all, this is how politics works. He realized this is a really, really bad outcome. So the politician made sure they got grid power uh, two weeks later. Uh, and, and it was funny. You got Greenpeace got all the good stories about the first solar powered village in India. Uh, and it was on CNN and everybody else, everywhere else. But of course it actually only worked for a couple of weeks and then they switched back to grid power, which to most people, most of the time was both cheaper and much, much better. And it sends an important message that we're somehow saying we've never lived with that, but we think the developing countries should live with poor, unreliable, and expensive power. No, why would they want to do that? Uh, we did a study for the Bangladeshi government. Uh, they've been talking about, they have a lot of problems with too little power, and clearly one of the things that they can get rich on is actually producing a lot of the world's goods. Uh, so they were talking about produce, uh, setting up an extra 12 coal-fired power plants. Um, this would have an enormous impact on Bangladesh economy. Uh, one study from University of Berkeley uh, actually showed that this could increase the, uh, the uh, uh, GDP of Bangladesh in 2030 by about 30%. This is a huge impact. It would generally lift a lot of people out of poverty. It would make every Bangladesh on average over the next 10 years about 13% better off. It would also emit more CO2. Just to give you a sense of proportion, for every $100 you'd make Bangladesh better off, it would increase climate damages by 23 cents. That's a real problem. But there's something unbelievably hypocritical when we come and say, I'm sorry, you can't have the $100 because I worry too much about the 23 cents. But indeed, that was exactly what Al Gore told Sheikh Hasina, the pr uh, prime minister in Davos, uh, when they met there. Uh, and, and of course, she just slapped him right back and said, what am I going to say to my poor people? I'm going to say, I'm sorry. Uh, Al Gore doesn't want you to be better off. Of course, that's not actually going to work out. And I think that's the way we need to realize we are not going to convince the world's poor to be stay poor because we worry about climate change. What we can convince them is if we innovate better green technology, that they'll eventually take that instead of fossil fuels. But of course, as long as fossil fuels is cheapest, they're going to go with that. This reminds me of another thing in the the Stiglitz piece that I noted when I read it, and then I noticed that you 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 met you mentioned it, which was just he just says casually like, "Oh, we can all agree that we should outlaw sensible regulations like outlawing coal fired generation." I was just thinking there are a lot of poor countries that might disagree with you, like they don't have a good means of getting even natural gas generation. They need coal, and this this raises the next issue I wanted to ask you about, which is. Um, so you mentioned with the the Darnay example how even for consumer uses of electricity like irons and whatnot it wasn't sufficient. But you've also talked a lot about how for development, like you, the scale of energy you need for development is totally different than what you need to put on a little light or power a cell phone. Could you talk about that? Yeah. So a lot of people think you know, and, and a lot of good, well-meaning NGOs will go to the developing countries and hand out solar panels. And yes, it does help. You can, tr you know, you can, uh, 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 you can charge your cell phone. You can have a light. That's wonderful. And if you didn't have it before, absolutely, that's great. But it's not what's going to get you out of poverty. It's not what's going to get you out of pollution. What is the most polluting thing for most people in the developing world is indoor air pollution, the fact that you cook and keep warm with dirty fuels. And so you know uh, that requires us to get electrified uh, uh, stoves, for instance, or electrified heating. There's no way solar panels can handle that or anytime soon. So what happens is you get an electric light, but you s still have incredible amounts of air pollution inside your home. That is what a grid power solution would alleviate. And likewise, if you're actually going to get people out of poverty, they need big machinery to get to both agriculture and industry to actually lift them out of poverty. And of course, they also need refrigerators. Again, can't be uh, can't be powered by uh, by a solar panel. So it's it's a very minimal set that we're thinking of when we give people a solar panel. It's nice, and it's I'm not you know saying we shouldn't do it, but I'm certainly saying you should not have any sense of saying oh now they're good. You know, they have a light. They're fine. Yeah, it's just and I think it, your work has done a lot in highlighting this. And I think there's a big opportunity for people from that part of the world to stand up publicly. So I love the story about the person from Bangladesh standing up to Al Gore. Let's talk for a minute about 
uh, this issue of innovation. And I want to focus around nuclear because you mentioned in the, you're talking in the book about nuclear becoming more expensive, but I think there's a lesson there because it's not like knowledge of how to produce nuclear energy has decreased. It's not like the fundamental inputs like cement is so much more expensive and people are, or people are dumber or uranium is so expensive. It's a regulatory thing. And I sometimes yeah. describe it as criminalization because I think nuclear is just, it's, there's so much regulation. It's, you know, you can't build it anywhere near as efficiently. And so one question is what, what can we do to decriminalize nuclear to make it easier? Um, and then the other aspect of it is if we don't, if there are these forces that attack new technologies, then I don't see how any new innovation is going to be held back because these anti-technology forces tend to focus on the new. They focus on fracking. They focus on nuclear. So I'm all for innovation. We can talk about the conditions of it, but I'm very worried that with the current anti-technology movement is just going to suppress any new kind of innovation. Hmm. Yeah. So I, I guess that's really good. two questions. And again, I'm not an expert in nuclear. I simply look at what what are we told that the cost of nuclear is right now. And the problem is that nuclear is just new nuclear is just uncompetitive with fossil fuels. And you're absolutely right. It seems reasonable to me to say that much of this is because we have overregulated nuclear. But another way to put it is that we've simply said we want it to be very, very safe. And there's no way you're ever going to get a regulation that says, Let's make it a little less safe because then it'll be much cheaper. I just I just don't see that happening. So what I I do see happening with nuclear is that we can make a new generation that includes all the regulatory approaches that we already have, but happens to be incredibly more cheap. That can happen. And I also think that it's more likely that if we really get this technological breakthrough, and that's more generally to your point, isn't all of these new technologies just going to be attacked and, and essentially banned by excessive regulation? There's certainly that possibility. I think that it's very likely that if we really see some of these breakthroughs in energy technologies, that they will be adopted in China, in India, and elsewhere, where there's much more willingness to say, look, we want you know safe, but we don't want super, super, super safe. Mm -hmm. And they will be willing to implement it. And then we will be in a position where we say, all right, do we want to just be outcompeted by these guys who just have much cheaper energy? Are we actually going to start thinking about how to do this for ourselves? And sure, we'll probably make it a little super safe than it is in India, but we'll probably adopt a lot of those technologies. So I think there is a better opportunity than than this very bleak outcome that we're just going to get, uh, you know, uh, over uh, uh, regulate it, any uh, any kind of new innovation, uh, and and I think both if you look at uh, GMOs uh, and if you look at fracking, sure, uh, you know, fracking did not happen in Europe. Uh, GMOs did not happen in Europe because we were just too scared. But they did happen in the U.S. and and GMOs also happened uh, in in uh, in Argentina and many other countries. It's hard to keep back really really good ideas. Uh, if if you look, for instance, on on GMOs on on uh, on uh, cotton. Uh, it was outlawed in India, but because it just grew so much better, people would just simply, you know, uh, uh, steal it over the border and start planting and sharing with everybody. And eventually they just couldn't keep it out because it was just such a good idea. If we make the same sort of invention, of course, it's also going to spread across the borders. But I agree with you. If we just get a tiny, tiny bit better, maybe it'll just get overregulated and killed. Uh, but, you know, most technological breakthroughs are not just a tiny bit better. They're a lot better. And then we'll be fine. But, yes, it would be wonderful if we could sort of wish away the overregulation. But I just don't see that happening. Yeah, well, we're, we're almost out of time, so I, I won't go into. I, I think there is. I, I think it's a good point that if you message it as, "Oh, we're just going to make it a little more dangerous," that's going to not go over well. I think there and, are and they other will. ways. <laughs> there are other ways to do it, but I do find it very heartening, and I'm glad you brought it up that you have these different places around the world, including places that are willing to experiment, and at a certain point. Uh, people will learn from them. Although I, I should say that it's shocking to me the extent to which people don't learn from things like the German energy policy and all these green energy schemes and something like the Biden plan. It's just proposes, oh, here's a brand new idea. Let's try to run our economy on solar and wind. And like, okay, somebody else tried that for 10% of their economy and it was a disaster. But now this is this new yeah. exciting thing. But it, it at least gives us the possibility of, oh, they're doing it really and, well here. Maybe I, we can do it as well. Yes. I, I think in some sense, what we're really buying 
is a sense of feeling good. You know, it's virtue signaling. So we're not buying a real thing. We're we're buying this warm, cozy feeling that we're doing something about it. And I think, you know, maybe, you know, humans are just willing to pay a couple percent of their GDP. What caps it is that you can't afford to pay, you know, 10 or 15 percent. And that's, of course, what keeps, you know, for instance, the German in a given uh, honest in a sense, you know, they, they start realizing, oh, my God, this is going to be really expensive. And then they sort of stop with some of the ambitions. And I think we're going to see the same thing in many other areas in, on climate policy. What I'm trying to do with my book and with the argument in general is just simply to say, look, I get that you want to spend a couple of percent and feel really virtuous. How about spending a couple of percent and really doing a lot of good? Wouldn't that be even more fun? I think that's always going to be a hard proposal because, you know, most of us just want to feel good. But at least we can push the conversation a little bit towards being smarter. Well, one just one final note that I think is a virtue of the book and your work is that you one thing you are pointing out is that this feeling good is coming at the cost of some of the people in the world with the least opportunity. And I think the more that's highlighted, the less people can feel good about it. And I'd, I'd like to work for a world where when people think about raising the cost of energy, they think about immediately about lowering the standard of living and the potential of poorer people to fulfill their aspirations. And when they think about lowering the cost of energy, they think about improving the lot of everybody, particularly the poorest people, and allowing them to fulfill their aspirations. And I think your work has been uh, really valuable. Any final messages you want to leave listeners with? And also uh, tell them what they can do to support the book and your work. So I, I think the thing we didn't talk so much about is the cost-benefit analysis, which is really the sort of gears of, of much of the work that I do, which is really to talk about, you know, what's the cost of the Paris Agreement and what's the benefit of it? How much do we actually get out of it? And getting that conversation, we'd never do this for anything else where we don't talk about, I'm sorry, what's the cost of this policy and how much good will it do? And when we start getting that sort of conversation into the climate conversation, we're much more likely to get good judgments. That's also where you can then see if you want to help people, you can do much, much better by focusing on their immediate demands and needs like stop dying from malaria or tuberculosis or from malnutrition or from these many, many other things that actually matter a lot more to most people around the world. So I think we need to start talking about, I'm sorry, what's the cost? What's the benefit? And start realizing we can't spend the same money twice. So let's spend it well the first time around. And I think there are some really, really great things to spend on climate, like innovation into green energy. But there's also a lot of money that's just incredibly wasted. And we should spend it on many other things. How do you support this thing? Well, uh, obviously, you know, take a look at the book. Uh, I, I think it is a it's certainly a, my best book simply because I had a, an editor that really just sort of kept uh, uh, hitting me in the head until I rewrote it three or four times. Uh, I think it's a really, really easy and good book. But also we work with something called the Copenhagen Consensus, where we work with more than three of the world's top economists, seven Nobel laureates in economics to look at where can you spend money in general to do good in the world. So that's where we work with Bangladesh, as I mentioned before. Uh, right now we're working with uh, Ghana. We're working with Malawi, one of the poorest countries next year, basically trying to get them to say, look, of all your problems, where can you spend the next dollar and do the most good? And you know, fairly rarely, it turns out, it's not climate policy, but it is many of these very, very simple things that will help the world so much more. So, you know, check it out and maybe uh, donate to the Copenhagen Consensus, but mostly keep banging on and saying, I'm sorry, that policy you just mentioned, how much will it cost? How much good will it do? Got it. Thanks so much, Bjorn. Thank you. Thanks again to Bjorn Lomborg for being on the show. Once again, his book is False Alarm. You can get it at Amazon or anywhere else books are sold, I assume. As we discussed during the show, he had recently come under attack yesterday, as I, I record this on Tuesday. This will come out on Wednesday. Uh, so I think on Monday, this New York Times so-called book review came out by the Nobel laureate Joseph Stiglitz, although the Nobel laureate has nothing whatsoever to do with energy or environmental economics. And it was really a hatchet job. And it, it really goes to show that there's a very strong establishment that wants there to be a climate crisis, or at least that's very attached to this narrative, and that has a lot of resistance to anyone who challenges it. So I think it's very important for us when we see good work 
to promote that work and to support it, including support it financially by buying it for ourselves and also buying it for other people. So highly recommend that you do that. One point of clarification that some of you might have noticed, it didn't, I, I didn't mention this during the show, but uh, Bjorn talked about how solar and wind, I think he talked about solar and wind being a little over 1% of the world's energy. Sometimes I use the figure 3%. So I wanted to let you know where that discrepancy comes from. He's using it from the International Energy Agency. And the long story short is it's using kind of the, uh, well, I'll, I'll give you where mine comes from. So the 3%, what that's taking into account is that the energy from solar and wind converts at a higher percentage than the energy from other things. Like when you burn coal, let's say you get 33% of the energy as electricity in a given power plant in the US. Whereas with solar and wind, you get a higher percentage of the sunlight or wind. Or it, it's, it's pretty technical, but I think that, I just think the 3% view uh, is more accurate if you're looking at the, the actual machine calories that people are using in the end, what percentage of those come from the sun and the wind. So I, I think 3%, which is the, the figure that BP, interestingly, the oil company that pretends not to be an oil company, I think they have the best, uh, most objective way of accounting. And a lot of this is relying on my good colleague, Stefan Henna, who's convinced me of this, at least to date. So um, if anyone has any challenge to that, challenges that I'm interested, but in case you wanted to know, because 1% and 3% sound different, that's why I think of it as 3%. Uh, besides that, again, definitely recommend getting the book. Hope you enjoyed the episode. And as always, if you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, you can email me at alex at alexepstein.com. You can follow me on all the usual social media uh, channels, but most importantly, subscribe to my newsletter at industrialprogress.com. Just enter in your email and you will get our Wednesday weekly email as well as the free energy clarity course. Oh, a lot of people say they enjoy that and you may enjoy it as well. Also, if you like the work that I do and the Center for Industrial Progress does, you can become an accelerator. So an accelerator is somebody who supports specifically our research and development efforts and our marketing efforts. None of the money goes to me personally or paying admin or anything like that. It all goes to efforts that really accelerate our efforts, like bringing in great thinkers and consultants to help me with the moral case for fossil fuels 2.0 or helping with projects that are giving messaging to political candidates or they're helping spread uh, our most popular videos around the internet. So if you're interested in supporting that, go to industrialprogress.com slash accelerate. Also, there's a bonus episode of Power Hour this week, and it features me being interviewed this time, and it's my favorite interview ever. So hope you enjoy that. Uh, be on the lookout for that. And I will be back next week. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.